Hello, everyone. Welcome to Real Talk, another episode of Real Talk, Diversity in Higher Education podcast. And Casey, we just had another amazing episode. Today, we we talked about cancel culture, the elephant in the realm. Often I hear we're talking about these conversations surrounding social justice. People Mm -hmm. may be a little nervous to engage. They're scared if they may be canceled for how they approach this work. And I love that we addressed that today. We talked about cancel culture. We talked about political correctness. Mm -hmm. We talked about empathy and emotional intelligence and conflict. We talked about who gets canceled, who does not get canceled, who does this apply to, deplatforming. We really get into it today. Yep. We talked about, um, you know, accountability in general and how do we deal with situations where somebody is harmed? Because right now, as a society, we're not doing the best job um, of handling these situations. And, and so we have a, a, an amazing guest with us today, Dee Howden, who really helps us have this complex conversation about something that, you know, people are a little loose when they're throwing around the term cancel culture. Oh, it's yeah. Like somebody has some type of complaint and then it's like, oop, put up the stop sign, cancel culture. Um, stop talking, cancel culture. Don't cancel me. Um, So it's used in a whole lot of ways. Um, So we really, you know, we break it down in this episode. And um, what Dee helps us do, so let me tell you all a little bit about Dee Howden, who is uh, a good friend of mine and a brilliant human being. So Dee is a queer, gender nonconforming, autistic human who supports victims and survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault, and who's been doing that work for about five years. Uh, Dee is also working on, as part of that, the Prison Rape Elimination Act. Um, Dee actively participates in mutual aid, community care, um, working on uprooting white supremacy in themselves and in their community. And they live out on the West Coast in Oregon. And yes, it's true, loves the outdoors and flannel and good coffee and good coffee. So enjoy the episode. Grab a good cup of coffee. Get a cup of coffee. We keep it real and also complicated. So enjoy. Hello, welcome to Real Talk. Real Talk is about real conversations with real people regarding diversity in higher education. I am your co-host, Jamil Harp, a student activist. And I'm Casey Counselor, a professor in the Communication, Media, and Screen Studies Department at Southern Connecticut State University. All right, Jamil, let's go. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Real Talk. Casey, we have an exciting episode coming up. We sure do. We have a hot topic. Cancel culture. It's everywhere. You can't avoid cancel culture. You know, whether like you can't pull up social media Uh, a newspaper, you almost can't even walk down the street without hearing somebody saying something about cancel culture. Yeah, while we have been discussing social justice and embracing different terms and different communities throughout the podcast, we thought it was extremely important to also address cancel culture. I hear often when we're having diversity, equity, and inclusion conversations, people go, oh, I don't want to be canceled. People are too political correct nowadays. I hear lots of things online in terms of social media, news broadcasters talking about cancel culture. And so today we're going to talk about cancel culture. What does that mean? What is canceling? What's not canceling? So we're going to dive a little deeper into that. And Casey, you invited a really exciting guest. I sure did. So today with us, we have Dee Howden, uh, who is a friend, a new friend of mine from 2020. And we did some deep racial healing, ancestral healing work um, with a cohort and uh, developed a deep relationship without ever having met and have recently especially been having some uh, really nuanced and I think quite important um, conversations about cancel culture Um, and a little bit different from the ways that I've been hearing um, in, in most mainstream conversations. So Dee, first of all, welcome. Yes. Thank you. Welcome. And I think maybe a good place to start is, um, you know, where does cancel culture come from or call out culture? Like what's the, you know, some folks might feel like that's a new thing. It just started, but we know it's been, this is something that's been happening for a long time, but what is really sort of the origin story of cancel culture? 
you know, what do you see as like sort of the primary purpose? What brought it up? Well, from what I've seen um, and experienced is that it's a movement that started with the people of realizing that trying to address power and oppression and trying to create accountability um, wasn't happening when people were going through quote unquote the proper channels. Mm -hmm. And so it was a way for people to say and express and be heard of these things are harmful and not just a means of like, I think people now associate it with getting a person removed from their job or shutting down a business or corporation. Um, but it was also about giving choice. So, hey, everybody, something that's important to know about this person or this corporation or this business uh -huh. is that these experiences have happened here. So go ahead and make a choice. Make a choice on where you're spending your time, what information you're taking in, uh, the money that you're spending. Um, it, it was a way for people to actually effect some sort of change or accountability when those other systems weren't doing that. Right. So it comes from this real like imbalance of power, right? When when the, mm -hmm. the quote unquote proper channels, when a harm has happened, no one's listening um, or it's not working. And so it becomes sort of like a, this is my only option is to, especially with using social media, um, that that can happen pretty quickly. Uh, but now what I'm seeing folks, I'm seeing so many people who actually hold significant amounts of power and have platforms saying that they are canceled. You know, like the governor of Georgia, when the, the baseball league pulled out because of the voter suppression law, uh, he's the governor holding a press conference and saying that he's canceled, which is actually quite the opposite mm -hmm. of being canceled. I mean, they lost an economic opportunity, yes. Is he canceled? Yeah, I would argue no. So I think the term cancel culture have evolved throughout pop culture, right? The term cancel culture starts showing up around the 90s when we're talking about comedians and some of the really blockbuster films. Um, people, actors are mentioning, oh, I just cancel that person, just cancel that person. Then it starts showing up in rap music, the term canceling. Um, and then it moves from that arena into Twitter around 2009, talking about canceling specific people, but more in terms of call-out culture. I think we should definitely um, differentiate the two. Call-out mm -hmm. culture is more like I'm bringing an issue to your, uh, to your awareness, where cancel culture is more has formed more into deplatforming. Um, mm -hmm. And I think often now when we talk about cancel culture, we talk about deplatforming de people. So stripping away maybe their Twitter account, right? Taking away their large microphone and soapbox that they use to express their views and values on. Um, it's a way of doing that. So I, that's why I think cancel culture is now currently in its current definition. Um, but like you said, I don't think a governor can be canceled if they're not removed from office because they're still platformed. Um, so it's very ironic for a governor to be like, yeah, I'm canceled. I'm getting canceled. No, you're facing public backlash, which comes with cancel culture, right? Cancel culture typically happens extremely public. There's mm -hmm. a backlash, typically politically. And you, if cancel culture works, you get deplatformed. But a politician facing public backlash isn't new, nor is it cancel culture. It really does feel like when people say I'm being canceled, they're acknowledging that people are upset with them for some reason, uh -huh. right? They don't like a behavior. They don't like an action, a choice that they've made. And there's public conversation happening about that. And then it's like, well, I'm being canceled, but there's not an actual consequence happening necessarily. There's like discomfort around that happening. There's a discomfort around people knowing that. Um, something's going on, but people start saying, I've been canceled pretty much immediately. Anytime that there's something brought up of like, hey, maybe that's not okay. Maybe that wasn't right. Maybe that's actually harmful. Um, and it's almost like the term has been co-opted to be used as a weapon mm -hmm. to shut down accountability 
and call outs that are necessary or asking people to grow and change. Um, and it almost is being used as a deflection from those things. Yeah, I want to, I was reading a, an article or a, an interview with Roxanne Gay today from March of this year. Um, and Jamila King asked her uh, whether cancel culture actually exists. And she said, uh, point blank, no, it does not. Cancel culture is this boogeyman that people have come up with to explain away bad behavior when their faves experience consequences. I like to think of it as consequence culture, where when you make a mistake, and we all do, by the way, there should be consequences. The problem is that we haven't figured out what consequences should be, so it's all or nothing. Either there are no consequences, or people lose their jobs, or other sort of sweeping grand gestures that don't actually solve the problem at hand. And I think that that's absolutely it. There's a binary um, in terms of, of, of whether there's a consequence or not, or there's been, we're conflating like a, a huge range of different kinds of harm into, uh, we're flattening. I just see a flattening where it's either all or nothing. Hmm. I think it's also important to talk about that cancel culture isn't a part of an institution, right? There's no one you can report mm -hmm. to and be like, hey, I'm not supposed to be canceled. It was a misunderstanding. It's social. Yeah, yeah, it's social. Um, I, I kind of argue it, it's kind of mob mentality, especially online. People just jump onto it. Mm -hmm. So it's not like this thing where you can report to a manager and try to clear up. And quite frankly, it's something that typically only happens to people that are in famous platforms, you know, very large platforms, ordinary people almost never face cancel culture, right? About people that we have claimed to have canceled, J.K. Rowling, right? J.K. Mm -hmm. Rowling had this huge transphobic um, talking for <laughs> a hill that she does. She wants to she die keep, on. She, she keeps um, climbing that hill. That she keeps climbing this hill. Mm -hmm. Is J.K. Rowling actually canceled? No, she's not. She's one of the most renowned authors in the entire world, right? People what we claim are canceled, never are actually canceled or even deplatformed. They face public scrutiny from some, not all. Um, and then that passes with time. You know, maybe after a month, people forget about it and they move on to somebody else. I would ask, is cancel culture even effective with eradicating transphobia, racism, all the isms of our world? In what I have seen, Personally, in my area out in Oregon, um, so Oregon has a fairly extensive history of racism and overt white supremacy, and um, businesses out in our area have been quote unquote canceled for some of their uh, right alt right uh, platforms. Basically, they're speaking out from that particular ideology, and then they're quote unquote canceled, whether that's socially or actually getting fines for going against government orders, whatever it might be. And what we see is huge groups of people come and support them to pay those fines, to um, give them business, to, in, in our town, we actually had a business bring people uh, a call to arms to bring their guns and stand in front of their business. And so that person was claiming to have been canceled, but had more support, uh -huh. more financial capital than they ever had before. And I think we see that a lot even in the bigger pictures, right, where someone in power sees someone else who they feel similarly to, they align with in some way, get canceled, and then they come in and support that person. And so inevitably, and I think if you look at the work of and the words of Erica Hart, um, there's a lot of really good conversation happening there around the only people typically who get effectively canceled are BIPOC folks, queer folks, or victims and survivors. That it's actually effective against people who are disproportionately affected by these systems. But when a white person or a cis person gets canceled, that inevitably that person maybe has a, a short time of discomfort around that, but they get support rallying around them because people don't 
want to watch someone be held accountable for something that they also might be held accountable mm. for. Yep. And so there's a lot of support around that. Oh, they didn't intend it that way. You can't treat people this way. They deserve conversation. They deserve care. They deserve room to grow. But that same uh, grace that they're asking for in those moments is not given to others who are disproportionately impacted by these systems. Um, I know we saw that quite a bit recently with uh, the Me Too movement. Um, you know, first of all, with it being co-opted by a group of celebrities when really it was Toronto Burke's yep. movement that was starting to address uh, sexual violence against Black women specifically. But then you look at the Brett Kavanaugh mm. hearing and you there were a lot of conversations around cancel culture about Brett Kavanaugh being canceled. And he is on the Supreme he Court. He is on the Supreme Court. And Christine Blasey Ford had death threats against her. I'm sure she still does. Move, has had to move multiple times and continues to have to move multiple times because of people rallying around um, this person in power. And the person who's actually been harmed in this instance uh, is actually the victim or survivor mm. in the scenario. And so I'm a an advocate, I should have said this first, I'm an advocate for sexual assault and domestic violence survivors. And we actually watch this play out quite a bit in Title IX investigations, hmm. um, where typically the perpetrator of the violence at an institution of school gets a lot of support, a lot of care, a lot of resources. Um, friends, faculty tend to turn on the survivor with victim blaming or holding them to a higher standard than trauma is actually gonna allow them to be able to meet. Hmm. And it's actually four times, three to four times more likely that the survivor is going to have to quit school and not be able to finish their degree than for the person who actually did the violent harmful act. They will usually graduate. Um, so, you know, it, these th these ways of thinking, these ways of, of handling um, issues around oppression and, and accountability. Um, we do see them mostly on those big platforms, celebrities, but then also the way that that impacts these lower level pieces, it happens too. Um, and there are, especially on some of the college campuses, um, there is language around cancel culture when it comes to especially um, like athletes, especially um, men athletes in these campuses being kind of rallied behind um, and claiming to have been canceled. And that's a clear, a clear example of how we could say cancel culture is weaponized because not only are, are you actually not being canceled, you're using that as, as a, a way of pushing people away from you and, and squashing dissent and really sort of being um, going on the quote-unquote offensive. It's playing the victim mm -hmm. at that point, right? Mm -hmm. So the way I see cancel culture being weaponized as a term is now they're the victim. So they've done some sort of harm. What they've done, intent or otherwise, has impacted somebody. And then they weaponize this term of canceling um, to then be the victim who needs support and care. It's incredibly harmful and dismissive and minimizing of the experience of the person who experienced the harm directly. It's scapegoating, right? So instead of mm -hmm. someone saying, okay, I have harmed a person, I have harmed a community, my actions were not in the best interest of others. I was not the kindest person I could be, X, Y, and Z. Instead, folks often use the term cancel culture as a way of scapegoating their own responsibility to themselves, to the community, and to those they have hurted, right? I don't have to address the controversy happening because I can blame it on cancel culture. I can blame it on pop media. I can blame it on my opposite political side, regardless of the political side I'm on. I can blame it on the other, whoever this other is. And then now I am protected from the actions in which created the situation and allow those that did speak up and try to hold me accountable and make me aware of my actions and hoped I would improve my actions, make them the problem, 
because it cannot possibly be me. And if you believe anything that I believe in, then they can come for you next. That fear mongering of, if this can happen to me, what do you think can happen to you and your job and your work? And I think that's where cancel culture gets dangerous as well, because it provides this narrative that this is happening to everyday people. Mm-hmm. And I see that as a deterrent of people that may want to get involved in social activism, that may want to learn more about diversity, equity, and inclusion, but are scared to speak because they have this belief they're going to get canceled. Cancel culture, quite frankly, really doesn't impact ordinary people. When I think about cancel culture, I think about, you know, a public backlash one. I think about maybe a boycott You know, it comes with, you know, I'm not going to buy your product. I'm not going to support your business. I'm not going to support your institution. Um, It comes with some type of action, a call to action, really. Um, And often that doesn't slip down to everyday Americans, everyday folks. Yeah, there's a way, and and Dee, we've talked about this, that I do think that it functions as a deterrent, you know, And and it keeps people from speaking out because, there's this sense of like, well, things are changing fast. Like I'm trying to do the right thing. But if I say the wrong thing, if I make a mistake in any kind of public setting, I put myself out there, then I could get canceled. So even though I would like to participate, I'm quote unquote pre-canceling myself. Like, so I'm, it's not likely, it's not going to happen. Well, we'll just say it won't happen to you anyways. But then we are holding ourselves back because we have a, a, a fear that we could be held to account. And really what they're talking about is discomfort, right? Like what they're talking about is, oh, I don't want to speak out. I don't want to make, I don't want to post this thing on social media. I don't want to attend this event. I don't want to make this sign. I don't want to say something in this conversation because if I say it wrong, I'm going to get canceled. And what they are referring to, I believe, is I don't want to say the wrong thing because then if I have, then I'm going to have to sit with that discomfort. I'm going to have to deal with the fact that I've said something that made someone feel uncomfortable or was hurtful or was the wrong thing to say or I'm going to overstep, right? And then that becomes the deterrent uh, from, from saying something or from participating and the piece that's really incredibly harmful about that whole thing is that they are centering themselves Mm. in the experience of harm that other people have experienced, right? Of, well, I I can't speak up or participate or help because then I might get uncomfortable at some point. And the reality is that's part of it. Like you got to learn to sit with that discomfort. You got to learn to grow. You got to learn to make mistakes and how to handle it. And I think this is a conversation Casey and I had had Uh was when I think about, I've had a lot of people in my personal life talk about being canceled um, in friendship spaces, which was really just um, friends seeing them do something harmful. And then they didn't apologize and in fact like stuck with and kind of leaned into their behavior and then some people made some decisions not to engage too much in that space anymore and then they claimed to be canceled and it's kind of what Casey mentioned if there was some self-canceling they actually realized that what they had done was harmful they actually removed themselves they didn't connect with anybody in that group but then claimed to have been canceled And I'm seeing people use this term for regular human relational interactions. Yes. Where people make choices about who's safe for them or not, who they want to connect with or not, or actually just baseline what we would call conflict normally. Yes. And the reality is it's like, no, you're 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 realizing that you did some harm and there's some discomfort around that. And I firmly believe that if people want to work through that fear of you know, speaking up or addressing what's happening in the world, addressing oppression, whatever it might be, that their first step is really understanding how to uh, process through that discomfort, how to apologize correctly, Mm -hmm. um, how to deal with conflict in a way that is kind and affirming to everybody, um, how to learn to just be curious about the things that they experience in themselves I think a lot of people get so hung up on what they find on their surface level, you know, um, bias or belief system that they never get curious enough to find out where the root of it is. So they're never actually addressing the deep internal work that needs to be done. They're just like 
making excuses and kind of skirting across the top of it to kind of get by without ever making someone feel uncomfortable. And I'm watching them get really worked up over what if I say something wrong and just this attempt to be perfect in a space that they can't be, uh-huh. right? That's not how racism works. That's not how homophobia works. That's not how bias and stigma of any kind works, right? It's there below the surface and then it pops up and then you're made aware of it. And so perpetually you're going to experience those things and like the skill and tools you need is actually not becoming perfect and never saying anything wrong. The skills and tools you need is how do you address those things when they happen and how do you do that graciously and how do you do that in a way that centers the person who was harmed? But yes, that's a really solid point, right? So I think we're now touching on emotional intelligence, right? And how Mm -hmm. we handle conflict. Often, just like you said, people are applying the term cancel culture to things that happen conflict-wise in our relationships every day. You know, you have a friend group, you borrowed her, you know, you borrowed her shirt and now you didn't give it back. They're mad at you. You are not being canceled. That's not cancel culture. You get into a fight with your friends. That's not really cancel culture. And even if we're talking about something like race, gender, sexuality, and you say something that is not the most palatable or it could be possibly offensive to the community, right? But you didn't mean to. You did it in good intentions. Um, I think instead of going, oh, my God, wait, 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 no, I didn't mean it. Don't cancel me. We should go, you know, let me educate myself. Let me further lean in um, and fix my mistake here because it's a learning process. Um, Often we, especially like historically in America, we try to think about being perfect um, and not making these mistakes when in order to be a part of this work, we have to make these mistakes. And I think, you know, the perfectionism also leads us into performative activism you know, that, that folks know exactly the perfect thing to say. And so we see the same people, they perform, you know, they use the script, they say the right words, but actually that's that surface level D that you're talking about where they're never really um, going deeper to get to the root of that, of that bias, um, which is what really needs to happen for us to stop perpetuating these um, systems of oppression. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that performance piece is really important, right? It's the, how can I appear like I don't have these things that I need to work on? Or how can I, you know, it, again, it's it's a very external focus. Uh-huh. I don't want to say or do something that's going to make me look like I'm this thing. Or I don't want to say or do something that's going to make someone feel this way. But it's not internal, right? It's it's not dealing with those internal pieces of why those things come up, you know, or what are the root belief systems that perpetuate those thoughts for that person? I think we all have different roots that we have to address. Similar roots, of course, being uh-huh. in America, but then also like we all have our own personal roots, which is like family of origin, it's community, it's um, cultural, it's what, you know, school even, right? Like it's so, we all have our own roots that we need to address and getting fixated on um, what's going to happen if I say something the wrong way. And it's usually that you're going to look bad is the fear. Mm-hmm. It's less, it's often what, what I see is it's less like I'm really worried about harming someone. It's really like, I don't want to look like a bad person. I don't want to look like a racist. I don't want the people to think that about me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a way to, you know, when we talk specifically about white people in the U.S., like I, f- I feel like there's, well, there's a lot of stuff going on with white people. Um, <laughs> I say as, as one. Um, one thing is, so w- with folks who are, okay, so I think about Kyle Rittenhouse, I think his name is, um, mm-hmm. the, the, yes. the kid. The kid from um, Illinois who killed three people in Kenosha, Wisconsin. I think that folks raised something like $900,000 for him on GoFundMe. So there is, and that's the circling around we talk about, you know, with the the canceling. So there is that. There's people really doubling down on the, you know, 
folks at the Capitol, like just going hard in that direction. And then I see a really large proportion of, of white people who see things like the folks going after the Capitol, the really, you know, the militia folks who are coming into your city, uh, D, who are probably still still there. We, we need to talk yes. about that. We can't forget to, to bring up last summer. Um, but so we see that. And then there are a lot of people who disidentify with those people who say, well, I'm not like that. And I think, you know, some of the work D, that we've done together is that we know we really need to look at how we are like that. We share. We can't mm-hmm. we can't also cancel those people because then we're actually not getting to the root. And we are the ones who are able to do that, who are closer to um, their experiences. And the more we push them away and differentiate ourselves from them, the more we're really not doing you know, fundamentally the work that needs to be done in the U.S. I wonder, is this a fear of nativism, you know, the, the fear of losing their America, the fear of losing um, traditional values, this fear is coming from? Um, I think that that's what I've seen the most in, in my area. So, um you know, the work that Casey and I have been doing was with um, some like incredible um, women, Ebony Janice and the Amonier. And um, that was happening at the time that some pretty substantial, we have had white supremacist rallies and actions happening in our state for a really long time. They definitely escalated this summer. Um, and I live, uh, I'm not going to disclose where I live, but, um, (laughs) we, we have had quite a few actions in, um, in our state at our capital and the language is very much that it is our value base, our system, our way of life is being threatened. Our freedom is being threatened. Uh, all of these pieces are core tenets of what's being expressed um, by by folks, and I see in just my town alone, in in the people around me, you know, this distancing. Well, I'm not like that. Um, but also, these are people who uphold all of those value bases. Also, you know, yes, they're not rallying at the Capitol, but they are upholding, you know, racist, oppressive philosophies in their church and in their homes and in their schools as well. You know, they're the people who are misgendering me or who are um, not dealing well with the, the, the child in their youth group who just came out, right? Like there's a level of harm that is correlative. There is like similarities, but by seeing such an extreme version, they're distancing themselves, right? And I think that's what Casey is talking about is you know, oh, I'm not like them. And so it gives them, again, some sort of way to be like, well, I'm not like them, so I don't have to work on these things internally. Um, and I don't think that that is a great way to start addressing some of those pieces that that need to be worked through and addressed. And also, I'm like, those are the people who are in your community. They're in your schools. They're in mm-hmm. your churches. Like they didn't just pop that out of nowhere. Like you interact with the folks that are there on a regular basis. And so you actually have the chance to communicate with them, to minimize hopefully the harm, to ask for accountability and in a different way that's safer than 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 someone who is a person that they target. You know, you have the opportunity to address the violence that's happening. You have an opportunity um, to call them to a different standard of behavior or too busy distancing themselves from it. They're not able to, first of all, address the similarities inside themselves because they're kind of villainizing, making these people out to be monsters in a way that if they have any similarities to them, they really don't feel comfortable addressing them. Um, but then also, you know, I do think that there's some discomfort there, right? They don't, they don't want to deal with this but they're not the people who are necessarily suffering directly. I do think they suffer indirectly from what's happening. Um, 
But it, it is interesting because this summer we were going through some of this work and it happened when some wildfires uh, happened in our area. Mm-hmm. And I actually, we had a, a massive incident that happened, um, a white supremacist rally that happened in, in town. And some of my friends were harmed by their actions. They um, attacked a queer individual while they were in town. All of these things happened. We all were sitting outside to process it about two hours after it happened. And then the wildfires started. And within a day or two, um, all of the same people who had been at that rally flooded into town, evacuating the wildfires. And we all showed up to do the mutual aid that was happening. And so, you know, providing beds, putting the beds together, organizing food and donations, um, providing food and donations, crowdfunding to get resources for people who'd lost their homes, um, who had been displaced. And it was the same, some of the same people who had done the harm. And so this is another piece I think of when I think about cancel culture is the actual care that is often happening from people that are, they're being claimed like these people are canceling me. And, and feeding like, you. Feeding. Yep. And giving you a bed to sleep on. Um, I have friends where their family members were, it was one in the same where uh, their family members deeply align with the rallies that were happening and then lost their home and came to the fairgrounds. And it started some really incredible conversations amongst the family because they believed all of these lies that they were being told and then suddenly watched the people that they hated care for them. And then they were like, okay, what am I supposed to do with this information now? Right. And it, it has led to some very incredibly difficult, but really beneficial conversations for my friend and, and their family. Um, it gave them a way to humanize it. Right. And there has actually been a shift. I don't know how big of a shift. I think it'll take time. But there has been an actual shift in that space. So. And that's the thing. I mean, that is such a fundamental act of humanity in a, in a situation that is also fundamentally unfair. Um, but when you talk about that that shift, that is a deeper shift than somebody who's been quote unquote canceled, who then is um, sort of socially forced to within 24 hours put out an apology. And we always, you know, how many of those have we read uh, that sound almost exactly the same? And you know, that's not sincere and that behind that, maybe that person is doubling down on what they're thinking. Um, and so that example to me is so powerful because the of the humanity of the folks who are who were harmed and how often we do see that i think often especially those in power that are actively being oppressive are worried and scared that one day those in which they oppress will rise up and do the same level of oppression they do to others and they're nervous about that. But we see time and time again when those that are extremely oppressive are in situations where they need mutual aid, where they need help, they are being helped by those in which they marginalize and continue to marginalize. And hopefully those moments can be teaching moments about humanity and empathy. Often we did not grow our empathy as a society by, you know, having fireside chats. You know, we know education increases empathy in people, but what really increases social progress and human rights and the rights of all of us, you know, upholding our dignity as individuals is the pushing of activism. So I definitely have a lot of complaints about cancel culture, but I do think often progress needs to be uncomfortable and needs to happen in lots of different ways. Um, But I loved how we were talking about white supremacists because often in cancel culture, the conversation is centered around white supremacists, right? Um, Often as Americans, we try to distance ourselves from the history of white supremacy and the active current state in which white supremacists operate, right? 
all American institutions are built off white supremacy. We have struggled with this. It has been underneath the carpet of American values since the founding and beforehand. And I love how we look at history and we open um, pictures and we look at the civil rights movement and we see people spitting at black children while they're trying to integrate into schools and go, oh my God, that could never be us. We have progressed so far upon that. We have not. We simply have not. The times and topic is different, but not the feelings, not the sentiments, right? The same people we see holding tiki torches, marching down the street, ranting racial slurs, people holding up swastikas, people screaming slurs and trying to perform hate crimes in the street are the same people that would have done that in the 60s, the same people that would have done that in the 40s, right? When we see people, especially educated folks, a lot of times people that were trying to cancel have degrees, right? They're politicians. They are educated people doing blackface and saying, oh my God, I didn't know that was offensive. I am um, 35, 40 years old doing blackface, and I somehow did not know that would cause a problem with how I run my corporation. Um, I don't see a connection between me doing blackface and the treatment of my black staff. I don't see that connection. Um, I find it very self-serving. And I loved how we're talking about um, how cancer culture can be used to, as a way of self-serving and protecting face instead of protecting those in which we're harming. I do want to, you know, there's also Adrian Marie Brown talks a lot about this, as do, of course, many other people, about how cancel culture functions in movement spaces um, and how that really, I see that as a quite different conversation. So, I mean, for example, with our podcast team, let's say some kind of conflict happens, and it probably will at some point. We all have um, a relationship of trust and a shared commitment and the idea would be with that kind of conflict, we would work this out. We would process this as a, as a group of people who have this, these relationships of trust um, versus, you know, hanging somebody out to dry and publicly shaming them, which would not help our shared commitment. Um, and that wouldn't happen in, in our space, but that does happen in social justice movements um, and movement circles. Um, and then there's the piece where somebody's in a position of power, like Jamil, you were just talking about, you know, with folks with, with staff, um, and the impact of that. So I do, you know, I do wonder if, I wonder if cancel culture has, gosh, I guess I'm already answering my own question, which, and the answer is no. And the question is, um, does it keep people from acting out? And I just, I mean... I hear new examples from people I know and in the media every day of awful things that folks are doing to other people specifically because of their identities. Um, but, you know, do you think that we're hearing more stories, like that more people are coming out about what's happening to them in this cultural moment? I would say we're seeing more of it because the world around us is changing. And not necessarily changing in sentiments, even though it is, but the way we interact with each other. Our digital presence has been raising every year. We spend mm -hmm. more and more time on social media. Therefore, we are connected to larger and larger networks than ever before. We're this all publishers. Our, yeah, we're all publishers. We're all content creators. We all have platforms of some kind in a way in which we did not 40 years ago. Um, and so I think even between that circle of trust that is something that happens in um, immediate relationships, you know, with working colleagues, with people you know, people at your church, people at your organizations, um, which you don't have when we're talking about people we don't know. Mm -hmm. We don't have that circle of trust. So I say um, there's a lot of variables to cancer culture and there's a lot of variables to severity of the topic. Are we talking about a racial slur? Or are we talking about someone that called the police on people that were just having a lovely day? Are we talking about someone that is actively using their platform to sprue like hate speech that are actively trying to incite violence? All these things I have seen as reasons that people have tried to cancel, but they have all had different severities. Yeah. And I have to, you know, we have not mentioned um, political correctness or quote unquote PC culture, 
which I feel like it, both cancel culture and, and calling somebody or something PC is a way of just stopping the conversation, like no accountability. And PC came about because, you know, BIPOC people, queer people are, are finally taking positions of power, naming themselves, insisting that they be called the names that they want to be called. And then all of a sudden we have this rise of PC culture. And why can't I call you the thing that I just feel like calling you? Um, I see a direct correlation between those two terms in, toward, in terms of wielding power. Oh, yes. Um, my initial thought is it wasn't a suggestion. It wasn't a suggestion. Often, right, when we are talking about, you know, marginalized people regaining power over the names in which they're called, over circumstances in which they have, but also having political movements. None of these things were suggestions to the greater public. They weren't suggestions to those that have privilege and hold power. Um, if we were to do these things and try to gain progress through the lens of our oppressor and ways in which they feel comfortable and happy, we probably wouldn't get anything done quite frankly, right? Like if comfortable and if someone's actively stepping on my neck and mm -hmm. I look to them and I'm like, hey, can you get this boot off my neck just a little? And they're like, no, I'm pretty comfortable here. Mm -hmm. Um I'm not asking my oppressor to somehow, I don't know, approve of a more dignified term to refer to my community. I'm not. Um, I don't seek that kind of approval, and I don't think many folks are, which is part of the reason it makes people even more angry. That's my hot take on that. I I think also something that, you know, in this conversation about cancel culture, right, you see the roots of where something started and how it kind of moves and shapes itself based on the humans interacting with it. And there's not a whole lot of control around some of that. And I think, I think that's the, there's that concept, right, of like intent versus impact. And yep. I think that's where a lot of people being called out get stuck. Well, I didn't intend, I didn't intend, I didn't know, I didn't know. They're mm -hmm. never dealing with the impact that those actions had. And I think movements similarly kind of go through that piece of intent versus impact and things will grow into something. And we've seen that with PC culture, right? Like we've seen that with person-first language, right? Person-first language came out to not label someone. Mm. And in, in actuality, as that has become more pervasive, there are a lot of people speaking out saying, hey, I don't want to be labeled in that way. Don't, for instance, you know, it is April, it's Autism Awareness Month and mm. Autism Acceptance Month, Um and there is a very strong move in that community. You don't say I'm a person living with this. I am autistic. And uh, and I am, I actually am a person who's autistic. So mm. I am autistic. And there is this piece of people saying, no, I, like I, I understand you, you've been told to that the sensitive way to address me is in this way, but actually that's that's not helpful. That's not for me. Yeah, I just want to take a second to define political correctness. So when we're talking about political correctness, it is something different than cancel culture. Political correctness mm -hmm. refers to the progression of language and how we refer to things in our society and to people and to places. Um, it's about making our language more inclusive, typically. And there seems to be hesitation because people, some people don't believe that the words in which we used before, there was anything wrong with them. And they want to continue to use that language without having to learn new language and new ways of talking to folks. I just kind of wanted to define political correctness really quickly. So people, if they did not know what we're talking about, have a chance to gauge that. Mm -hmm. I think often we lose how powerful language is. You know, the way mm -hmm. we talk about things defines its relationship to us and our society the way we value personhoodship, the way we talk about feelings and emotions and labels for communities and things we attribute to people are deeply important. So I think a lot of folks don't realize how important language is, especially in terms of understanding our place in the world around us. 
but there seems to be a hesitation with PC political correctness culture. Yeah, what always gets me as a, like I have a PhD in rhetoric, um, how often it is that the people who say, well, like PC, like language doesn't matter, are getting very angry about language. You know, yes. so it's often the same people there, like this is like, why are you so sensitive? Well, why are you so angry? Of course, language matters. Of course, language matters. Mm-hmm. And culture shift, language shift, they happen together. Um, and I see often, you know, one of the, the things that people fear in terms of being canceled is not being politically correct. They worry that if they say something wrong, they use the wrong terminology, they may, um, they may be called out for it, called out and, and asked to be accountable. We don't become anti-racist. We don't become anti-oppressive without being called out for the ways in which we are. Mm-hmm. If you don't know the ways that you have the problem, right, that you may be, maybe you have colorism, maybe you're struggling with that, maybe you're struggling with racism, maybe you're struggling with homophobia, maybe you're struggling with some of these different things and you have these biases already. We all have biases of some kind, right? And then you express this bias If you completely reject the fact that you have that bias, you can never fix that bias. You cannot grow as a human being. You cannot ensure that you are reducing harm in your life with those around you. It's a part of growth. It's a part of having emotional intelligence, you know, to have that conversation with a person about critiques of you. Maybe a hard thing to do, but it takes a lot of emotional intelligence to do, to be a professional and sit down and have that conversation of, hey, Um, That thing you said may have been oppressive. It may have been inaccurate. Um, And to not be defensive to that and embrace that and explore to see if that was the case Um, and then apologize and then move on. I think a lot of people realize sometimes it's just that simple. And to also, you know, I mean, sometimes people will correct you gently and lovingly. And sometimes people will be angry. And both of those are all of that is valid. All of that is valid. And Jamil, you're making me think that I should build, um, you know, how to take feedback of all kinds, feedback on your essays, feedback on your behavior, but that maybe I should figure out how I can build this into my classes so that we can practice because these are skills um, to be able to sit with discomfort, to pause, to process, to breathe, to be okay. Um, And that this, you know, in college, that's a good opportunity to develop those skills and learn how to do it. Well, I'm glad you said that because I want to know, is there any advice or like a vaccination to cure this cancer culture disease, particularly on college campuses? Well, okay, okay. Let me let me take that question and add a little. Add a little spaz, you know. A little little, little something to it, a little something. Um, so we, okay, we, we we have been talking about this the whole time, how, you know, in terms of cancel culture, especially in terms of sexual assault on college campuses uh, and otherwise, that the one who suffers the most harm is the person who was initially harmed, the victim in the situation. And so I wonder, um, and Dee, as somebody who works with this, specifically with people who have experienced this on a daily basis, which is something Jamil and I don't do, um, what, like, this is where we ask the radical imagining question. Like, so in your most radical imagining, what, what does dealing with harm and conflict look like? And because, you know, we're a university podcast, we're on a university, um, we're thinking specifically about that setting, but what would it look like for you? That's a really good question. Um, I think that that is coming up quite a bit right now because Title IX has made some shifts towards restorative justice actually already. And advocates all across the states are having a big difficulty with it because it is forcing the person who is harmed to be a part of that process, whether they want to be or not. And so when I radically imagine what that looks like, accountability for the people who've done harm, it should always center, again, the impact, right? It should always center the person who was harmed. And there needs to be choice. Uh, When someone's harmed, they don't have control over it. There's loss of autonomy, whether that's someone 
verbalizing things to them, touching their body in any kind of way, whatever it might be that someone has had to experience being, you know, overly sexualized or um, whatever that harm might look like for that person, uh, that, that, that does need to be centered in that process. But there also needs to be, you know, there's this concept, right, about, and that's like a whole other big conversation, right, the difference between the carceral system and how that plays out and how we treat each other. Yeah. But you, you look at, you want to affect change, right? You want people to stop being harmful. So that radical imagining, it's like, what do we do to hold accountable the person who's done the harm to at least try to grow that person if they're willing to, or in some way make it known that that behavior is not acceptable. And there needs to be people having that conversation. And, and that typically doesn't happen. And I think that there are going to be people who want to be a part of that conversation, people who should be a part of that conversation. And it should never center, or it should never be the person's job who is harmed to have those conversations and to be a piece of the healing for that person. I think we all can do that without that person present if they don't want to be, mm-hmm. and they might want to be. Um, but in my experience working with the survivors, that is an incredibly traumatic experience. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of conflicting feelings about justice, right? I want justice for what happened to me, but also I don't want this person I care about to be harmed because typically they have a relationship with Mm -hmm, that person, mm -hmm. you know? So I think that there is actually a lot of victims and survivors speaking out saying, I want them to get help. I don't want like this kind of like big punishment or big consequence. I want them to be better, you know? And so I don't know what that looks like. I think that's the big question, right, that everybody has right now is what does that look like? How do we do that differently? Um, And I think regardless of how that ends up happening, we can never be forcing someone who was harmed to have to be the person to heal the person that harmed them. And there's a lot of community care that can happen where other people step in and have those conversations and are a piece of that work. so that's, I think, my big reimagining is, yeah, creating space for that, but also whatever that look at, whatever that looks like, it has to be recognized that not everybody wants to change, not everybody wants to grow. So you gotta kind of take that into consideration and and figure out how to take that into account as well. Um, I don't know if we have really good answers on that yet, but I think people are asking all of the right questions. And I know I've read a lot from Grace Lee Boggs and Adrian mm. Marie Brown and, you know, Angela Davis. And there's like just some incredible conversations happening right now about how do we have accountability that actually affects some kind of change, yes. some kind of shift for people to be less harmful. Um you just set up this quote that I've been wanting to read. And I was like, I don't know if I'm going to find a time on the podcast. And now that, you know, you've, you've set it up perfectly. This is from um, abolitionist scholar, uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore. And it's just to say that instead of asking whether anyone should be locked up or go free, why don't we think about why we solve problems by repeating the kind of behavior that brought us the problem in the first place? Mm. that's that right there every podcast Mm -hmm. I like to also answer this question of reimagination you love imagination oh I do I have I have a vast imagination so I would say I love your point especially around not making it the job of those that have been marginalized and victimized to somehow educate and be in charge of the other person's um, growth I love that, you know, maybe they want to be in charge, maybe they don't. Um, I think that was a beautiful point. But I also know um, this question may be a lot easier thinking about a college campus than the world, you know. Mm. Um, or oh, we start where we are. We start where we are, right? I think we are a community. All of us are a community on campus, you know, students, faculty, alumni, administration. We are all part of our community. And one thing that we all share is the want and need for a sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. 
all of us want that. We want to feel like we are loved, we are valued, and we are here, and we're wanted here. And I think using that as a foundation for reacting to situations is something in which we should look into. You know, how can we educate the one that is causing the harm? How can we ensure they are getting the resources they need while also making sure the victim is getting the resources in which they need? And I think this is a point where we can't do that if universities are neutral. Hmm. We need to have a universal moral compass as institutions so we know what we're holding people accountable for and not for. So if universities are neutral, there is no level of what are we doing? What are we not doing? What are we accepting as a community? And what will we not accept? Will we accept white supremacy? Will we not? Will we accept sexual assault? Will we not? These are some big topics, right? These are big, dark topics, but even down to little things. Will we accept racial slurs? I want to say little things, but you know, smaller mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of some of those larger things. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we want people to feel, act, and be on our campus, but still be their own individual selves? But we need a, a level of understanding as a community of these are our guidelines. We have guidelines, mind you. We do. Every mm-hmm. campus got guidelines. But I think it's about reimagining what those guidelines are, making sure we're all aware of the guidelines and standards that we're being, that we're holding each other to as a community and figuring out how to use kindness and sense of belonging as a way of enforcing and ensuring that we're being held to the standard in which we set is my radical imagination. All right. And then every time you're radically imagining, you're always sparking ideas in me. So that that foundation of belonging, I, you know, makes me just immediately think, so let's say somebody causes harm intentionally or not, doesn't matter. From the foundation of belonging, that makes me want to get close to that person and to say, what's happening here? Like, like, who are you? And what has gone wrong for you? Why do you not, you must be lacking something, some sense of belonging. And to be able to really get close with that person to, um, to find out truly what they need, assuming I'm not the one who has been directly harmed in this case, right? Um, but to address that, which then is a way of, of stopping future harm, not just to our community, but to wherever this person may go. But to do that without first, without the first response being to cancel them or publicly shame them, because that you know, that can set off just a, a, a sequence of future, future harm. Yeah, it could reinforce those feelings, reinforce that behavior. Mm-hmm. And I think it goes back to what Dee says a little earlier, and I love it. Um, a lot of these things are predictable. They're predictable when they're reoccurring. We know some of these mm-hmm. things that are problems in our community. And when are going to happen next year, the year after that? So it's about being preemptive and building an education So folks are gaining that education as they're moving through our classrooms, they're moving through our workplaces. So they know before a situation happens, how to respond to it. They know about cultural awareness. They know how to work in a diverse work environment. They know about hostile workplaces, hostile living arrangements, how to prevent that, how not to be a part of that. It's about that preemptive education. And as an institution, our main job is to educate. And we know we make more empathetic citizens and civic leaders through this work. So this has been I great. think also, um, sorry, just to add to what you're saying, Jamil, of it's also that piece of like people who are comfortable with the discomfort and it's not just people being held accountable, learning to process through that. But I think there is an opportunity when it comes to holding people accountable. A lot of times the reason why that doesn't happen is because the people who are meant to hold that person accountable are uncomfortable with what happened. Mm. They're uncomfortable with conflict. They're uncomfortable with navigating those situations. And so they actually like minimize it or like distance from it or it's like, ooh, maybe you didn't mean to do that in that way. I don't want you to have meant to do that in that way, right? Yeah, there's an opportunity for people who 
understand these things and care about them enough and actually care enough about the person on the other side of it to actually hold them accountable because they know that's actually loving that person. Yes. Is actually holding them accountable as a way to grow them because their relationships will be better. Their world will be better if they actually learn to work through those things. But you can't actually hold that person accountable if you are uncomfortable with what they did. Yes. In a way that you're not going to actually be present with them and there for that whole process. And I think that there are people who can sit with that. Mm -hmm. They have those skills. I think there's a unique opportunity for people to be in that position because that is a radical community love right there Mm -hmm. to actually put yourself inside of that space that is uncomfortable. It's ugly. It's, it's, it is not something that some people have the skills to navigate or want to do. Um, And it's that piece, right? We all have a, a part to play in that community work and that sense of belonging. And I know people who can handle that. Right. And I think that the people who are in the position to hold accountable should be those people because it's a different level of care. I think that needs to happen. Um, and I don't think people who can who struggle with that should be in those positions, I guess. Boom. Like, I think that it. everybody should mm-hmm. be able to do that is maybe a little bit um, putting people in a difficult position, I think. That's it right there. That point right there is it. Because often we find when we have people in positions that are meant to hold others accountable, that are meant to reteach, re-educate in these situations, right? We either see a couple of things when when they're uncomfortable doing so. Just like you said, they will minimize it and make it seem like it's less of a big deal than it actually, than what it is. So, I think it's about being intentional with training our staff and making sure our staffs have the competencies and skill sets to do this kind of work, right? Making sure our staffs are comfortable doing this kind of work um, and providing resources, not just for the parties involved in the circumstances, but for the larger community as well. Um, But it definitely comes down back to hiring, making sure we're hiring people with these competencies already um, and not expecting them to be minimizing this work or passing this ball on to other people because it's more convenient to do so. Um, so thank you so much for bringing that point up yes. because yes, yes. yes. And I think, you know, this is a, we do, we could keep talking, which is probably obvious if you're listening that we could keep going, um, but we do have to wrap up. And I think that that's a perfect note to end on, which is what if accountability, what if we understood accountability as being a form of love and care? as opposed to something to fear and avoid or something that's scary and harmful. But no, accountability, if someone's holding you accountable, it is an act of love and an act of care. Reimagining accountability. That is beautiful. That's the name of a new podcast. If anyone wants to host it. <laughs> well, this conversation's you. the best. Thank you so much for coming on, Dee. We really appreciate this. Dee, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is a joy.